Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show where design leaders talk about practical ways to quantify design, about making our work more transparent, and about how designers can make a bigger impact in their organization. I'm your host, Christian Vasile. And before we begin, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Today, I'm chatting with Megan Dell, Director of Design at 99designs. It's a good conversation about the work she's doing behind the scenes as a design leader, the challenges of creating products for a global audience, and how her fitness journey has helped her career. Megan, thank you so much for being part of the Design Meets Business journey. You are a Director of Design at 99designs, a household name in the design world, has been for many years. So I'm looking forward to today's chat. Uh, before we begin, just so uh, everyone knows who we're talking to, can you give us a bit of a, an introduction, how you ended up becoming a designer and how was that journey that you've been on until now? Yeah, absolutely. And hi, everyone. And thanks for having me. Um, look, to be honest, I studied graphic arts and I always wanted to be a designer, but I could never get a job as a graphic designer. And so after getting so many rejections, I ended up applying for a role in a call center, thinking that I would just take that for six months and um, actually found my way through the company uh, into replying to customer emails and then uh, doing some work on the website. This is about 20 years ago so no one cared about the internet and uh, right. <laughs> kind of found myself doing user experience design without even knowing it and kind of stumbled into it through that way and over the course of the years have kind of carved a bit more of a career through that journey worked in agencies focusing on mobile apps and things like that um, all the way through to yeah where I am today uh, at 99designs and I've been here for the last six years now. Yeah that's quite a while in, in today's <laughs> tech world let's call it everyone oh. just jumps after a year or two don't they <laughs> i know i thought two years was my limit but 99 has right. um yeah always like provided me with lots of really good challenges and learning opportunities so yeah six years later i'm here yeah well i guess that's what it's all about right just uh, if if you're not feeling challenged or if you don't feel that you've got if you don't feel like you're growing then you're much more likely to jump ship and go somewhere else so um Totally. <laughs> a bit a piece of advice for employers <laughs> if people are leaving too often and try this <laughs> if you haven't tried it yet yeah and I'm, uh, so oh, yeah, i was just going to say in this designers we're such a curious bunch as well right so you've got to kind of keep that you can't have people get bored and feel as though they're just getting a bit too comfy in their roles so yeah if you want to keep them keep them learning yeah for sure how have you found that transition from customer support answering emails and all that to actually having doing the work of a designer how was that for you oh well because i because i had studied design and i was also working um in my own time as quite an active artist as well so i was always doing creative work um it just felt really nice to be able to take the learnings that i had had from speaking with our customers on the phone and then later answering their emails and then trying to solve some of those problems through the interface and understanding like the needs that they had from my first um first-hand experience being in customer support so it, it was very different to go into more of a design kind of role it was definitely a gradual transition but it prepared me so well with that uh, solid foundational knowledge of who the customers are from kind of spending a long time talking to them directly in customer support. Yeah, I, I can imagine that was, uh, well, I think when you have the pulse, the, the finger on the pulse, isn't that what it's called? Yeah. <laughs> when uh, when you, t you, know, you talk to customers at all times and you 
get into that mindset and you build that empathy for whatever it is they're going through on a daily basis, then you're also much more motivated to solve those problems in whichever other role you are, whether you're a designer or a even developer sometimes. <laughs> I've, I've had in the past developers brought into usability testing sessions. And as soon as they've seen what was going on there, they became advocates for better design. You wouldn't think that, <laughs> right? So I, I, I'm sure having the finger on the polls has helped quite a lot. For sure. Since then, how have you seen... Well, first of all, your role as a designer and later on as a design leader, but also the role of a designer in general. You know, if you've been around for 20 odd years, how have you seen that change and evolve? Oh, um, that's a really good question. I feel as though also my expectations and understanding has changed quite a bit over that time as well. And I think that that's through the experience that I've gathered and just general kind of maturity and uh, life and my working life as well. I guess when I go back to the early days of my career, compared with now, I certainly see design so much more as a role where facilitation is just so important and it's uh, bringing others along the journey, uh, your communication skills as well. So not only your visual communication skills, but also able to kind of talk about your design rationale or perhaps uh, explain in various different ways the problems that you're trying to solve with your design to your colleagues as well and get them on board with why is this an important problem to solve too. So I think my... Uh, it's kind of changed for me and I've got more of a well-rounded understanding of it. I don't know if this has so much changed throughout the years fundamentally uh, for everybody, but certainly my perception has evolved. For sure. Yeah. One of the aspects of design that I've noticed has evolved, not even in the past 20 years, maybe in the past 10, is that we're having more conversations around the importance of design when it comes to affecting the bottom line, right? The uh, metrics design is just a driver for, for whatever the business needs to be done more so than what it used to be in the beginning. I guess just, can you put some CSS on its on this HTML to make it look nice? So I, I would assume, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that on a daily basis for you, that is a very big part of what you're, you know, empowering your design team to do, what you maybe do at the high level as well. It's always talking talking about how design affects the business. Affects can it be a positive, not only necessarily mm -hmm. a negative. So, uh, is that is that uh, am I am I correct in assuming that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's also something really special that people with the design skill set, and I guess the the way that our brains can kind of be programmed to solve problems and look to simplify things as well in that we can help with some pretty gnarly business problems too. And that's just through our design thinking and our human-centered design approach, which is very different to, well, certainly at my level, like very different to my peers who could be like the head of marketing, head of finance, et cetera. Um, right. So it's a very important skill set as well to have kind of in those senior business conversations too. How do you empower your teams to do that on a daily basis because again design historically speaking hasn't necessarily been thought of as a business function but it is today mm -hmm. so whenever someone joins your team or whenever someone is already there and you know has to deal with some of these business problems and solve them through design 
how are you there to support them? Um, look, I would try to help remove any blockers that they may have. Of course, I feel like that might be a pretty standard answer, but it's also helping them understand the work that they're doing and how that fits in with our company goals, why that's important, how strategically that kind of helps our business. And of course, uh, importantly, the end users. So for us at 99, it's both our designer community and the clients as well. And so like helping them connect the dots uh, too. And I would assume, again, that at the level you're at, you're also doing a lot of work that is not really visible per se. You're not, first of all, you're not pushing <laughs> pixels anymore. You're sitting in meetings sometimes, you're you know evangelizing for design. Maybe you're, as you said, you're trying to remove blockers. So I know that running a design organization consists mostly or heavily of work that no one really sees. Can you talk a bit about that and, and how you found that transition from pushing pixels to having to do that? Oh, yeah, I, so much. Like we do a, a weekly stand-up in the design team. I mean, it's asynchronous, just over Slack. And sometimes I think, what are, what can I write here? Like, because so much of the stuff that I do is sort of behind the scenes. It's in meetings, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, sorry. So what was the question? The transition, was it? Or Tell us about all that work that you have to do behind the scenes. <laughs> That's the, the, the challenges of that. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's getting your head around, yeah, this is also work. It's like, especially as you change roles as a designer and as you kind of move into more leadership and management roles, it's the understanding that while I may not be in Figma all day, I'm still actually doing work that's legit. And that could even be meeting someone for a coffee because perhaps I'm trying to network with them because maybe I want to hire them in the future or understand mm. how they run sure. their team and all of that. So it's a, a reframing of what is what is work uh, in a different yeah. role. And a lot of the things that I'm doing, I'm looking at hiring a design ops person. A lot of the stuff that I do is a lot of design ops things, thinking around our team's uh, progression and our career ladder. We're rolling out our annual review process soon. So I'm already kind of looking at everybody in the spreadsheet and ensuring um like that we are looking at everybody's salaries fairly and have the right classification for people, whether they're a mid-wage, a senior, a lead product designer, UX researcher, et cetera. So kind of like a lot of the maintenance around running the team. Yeah. Also uh, looking at all of our team rituals and looking to revisit and re-energize them. Just today we went through our engagement survey results as a design team. So I collated all of that information, prepared the slide deck, and then walked the team through that um, and so on. So these are all kind of more like ops and admin type things that I'm doing. But then also within the senior leadership team, I'm there to represent design and really be an advocate for the people that we're designing for. So our clients and designers at the most senior level conversations within the company and bringing the perspective from those end users into those conversations as well and trying to ensure that my peers within the senior leadership team actually understand truly what some of the core pain points of our end users are and that we're accounting yeah. for that, like in our quarterly product planning and things like that too. Yeah. Probably working for 99designs is very different because it is a you know, a design-led company in a way, of course, at least the, its mission is is design, uh, it's evangelized design, if you will. But um, I have a an experience working in a company that's less design-led, much less, not even tech-led. Uh, it's just okay. very, very old-fashioned. And in that case, I found our director of design to be so important for us kind of on the ground because he would be there taking all these battles 
and allowing us to do the work that we're doing because he would kind of shield us from it. And mm -hmm. whenever we would go into these meetings with you know senior stakeholders, he'd be there with us to kind of support. And, and he just knew how to frame design in a much better way than any of us ever could. So he was such a fundamental part of us being able to do great work because he was mm -hmm. the translator. Yeah, translator yeah. of design for the business people. So um, maybe for you, it's it, that part of the job is not that necessary there. But I assume in other organizations, um, it very much is. Oh, yeah. I mean, it still does um, come about as well. One of the conversations that I feel like I'm always having is, uh, so we've got a team uh, called our delivery systems team, and um, that's also where our design system work is housed. And I do feel as though I'm constantly having conversations about why we have to have two designers within that team right. and kind of translating right. the work that they do into the same realms as, well, it's just as important for us to be focusing on our own uh, tooling for our design system as it is for an engineer to be working on uh, tooling for their engineering counterparts as well. So of course we're going to have more than one designer thinking about our design system. Right. So there's like a bit of translation in that kind of regard as well that I'm doing. For sure. You mentioned earlier you working asynchronously in your team. Uh yeah, trying to. Yeah. Yep. Trying to. How are you finding that? How are you finding working with designers, well, generally pro with product teams asynchronously? Because that's a relatively new way of working. Yeah, we've been trying to do it organizationally um, for a little while now. Uh, it's certainly not strictly asynchronously. Um, and so, for instance, we've just had a meeting today with the entire design team, and that was so we could also have like a bit more of uh, in-person interactions. Um, right. It has been really challenging though. And one of the things that we need to get better at is the discipline of just trying to view calendars in a slightly different way. So it's if someone has some free time in their calendar doing their air quotes, uh, so to speak, it's not really an opportunity for them to just be ready and available for a meeting. Like we need to respect right. giving people that time to kind of do their work, have focused time as well as, you know, watch whatever Loom video someone's recorded, read the document or write the thing as well. It's still like a, a definitely a work in progress and it's been a hard kind of transition for us. But I think something that I'm really keen to continue to work on improving because I just think we can't go back to the old way of working. We're definitely not going back to being into the in the office from nine to five or whatever your hours may be. So yeah. it's all changed. What, what we're doing at Uptime is we have, because we're also... In a way, we're all, all in the same time zone, but I'm not. So I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm kind of very far away from everyone else. Yeah. So what we're doing is that we have meetings. We have a, a blocks for meetings in morning UK time, which is kind of late afternoon for me. And then anything around that, they get their time to actually do work, the, the focus time, as we call it, in their afternoon, so UK afternoon time. Yeah. And I get that in, in my time in the morning. So, so it's having that time to say... This is when we usually meet. And if you have meetings, put them roughly in this block of three, four hours here. Yep. And everything around that is is more your time to work. And we're finding that to be such a good way of working because it allows creative people to have focused time to do creative work, mm -hmm. which I remember in the office was always such a challenge because someone wants 10 minutes of you, then there's lunch, then someone's leaving early, so they need to have a meeting with you now, or all of that, you, you would never get work done. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. even remember how it would get work done in the office. 
Yeah, I do. It's like I'm a very uh, easily distracted person as well and a very visual person too, so I don't know how I was able to concentrate at a desk <laughs> yeah. with people around me in the office back then. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm certainly not going back to that. I know a lot of people want to, but I don't. I'm not one of them. I'm happy the way it is right yeah, now. Nice. <laughs> You've been with 99designs for six years, you said, yep. and that's quite a while. And I also know that in the past six years, you know, there's been quite a lot happening for the company and acquisition in this period as well. Not only just day-to-day -day work, but I can assume that an acquisition is a big deal. So how have you seen design help throughout these you know many years that you've been there help the company grow yeah i mean it's it has been a full-on journey over these past six years design um one of the things that we've done within the design team that has been such a game changer was introduce a dedicated ux researcher into the team and so i hired our first researcher um a little over two years ago and having even though we were small design team back then so we we're about maybe five or six people at that time. so it felt like the designer to researcher ratio was probably a little bit luxurious but uh yeah. hiring a dedicated researcher just really helped us as a company where we want to be very close to the end user. We all work at 99designs because we really want to make life better for designers around the world who are using our platform and it just made somebody's like full-time job actually able to help um, bring people closer to our end users and organizationally that was huge because it meant that we were doing like regular interviews with our clients and designers we were able to bring in their conversations into many more strategic company conversations and also just have more of a dedicated research practice and prioritize that heaps more than we ever did in the past because Prior to hiring a dedicated UX researcher, it was the UX designer who was expected to kind of fit that in amongst everything else as well. So sometimes sure. they would like skimp on that a little bit too, based on priorities and timelines and all that kind of stuff. And these days we have a research team of research manager. We've got four UX researchers and a research ops person as well. So we've been able to really uh, up the ante on that because it's been such a huge benefit for us organizationally. So that's kind of helped. Um, I guess the underlying thing is uh, it's actually bringing some real data to our design work as well. And so it is qualitative information, but it, it is actually factual information as well. Yeah. We've spoken to all of these people. They find this really difficult to use. We should do something about it rather than just a designer saying, hey, I think the usability on this is a bit crap. Right. Yeah. Since you have so many researchers, I would assume you have a a monthly, weekly, bi-weekly cadence of talking to users, or does it happen more on an ad hoc basis whenever it's needed? How does that work? Yeah, um, so we have researchers work with all of the different projects that are ongoing, and we also hire designers who have skills in research in their own right. Yeah. But what we've been doing is our product management team are also fantastic when it comes to wanting to get out of the building, so to speak, and talk to our end users. And so they have really helped champion a continuous discovery process. And so what that means is every single week, we are having conversations with clients and designers and getting to understand about what makes them tick, what's working well, what's not working well, and so on with our platform. And so this is every single week without fail across our four different groups. So we've got 12 different teams. They're all getting that exposure, which is really awesome. Yeah. How does, if, if you're doing this every single week for every single team, 
there must be such a massive challenge of collating all that data and doing something with it because by the time you're you're trying to act on something the next cycle the next week is is here already so how does your team take in all of that customer information and do something with it in a meaningful way yeah yeah that is a challenge as well so the team um like whoever it is so we rotate who's meeting the people who's taking uh who's the note taker as well but they are kind of blogging about this we use confluence as our central like organizational hub for all of this info as well so they're posting a link to the recording any salient points they're kind of putting in there in confluence but then we also use a research repository tool so where we're uploading all of the recordings and then we're actually tagging them too so we can do a lot of secondary research so if we actually thought hey we want to um better understand this particular part of the experience, we can go into um, our research repository tool and then search for those particular keywords. So it could be like the brief crafting experience from a client's perspective. And then we can find all those snippets as well. So we're kind of doing it. It's not perfect, but we're doing it in a way that is kind of thinking about, hey, this is a massive information that we're getting. How can we make it uh, more accessible for anyone uh, in the future within our company? Uh, What's that? Uh, repository you're talking about. Oh. It's very useful. <laughs> uh, at the moment, we're using uh, Dovetail, but that may be changing. Dovetail. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I've heard about Dovetail. At Uptime, we're using um, Notion oh, yeah. for everything, really. <laughs> and I, I personally find it to be, well, it's one of those tools that's good for everything, but not great at anything yeah. in a way. I think a research repository would be really good. I'll you, you, yeah, you just reminded <laughs> me of something very important that I have to do later on. Yeah, make <laughs> yeah. a note. Yeah, we, <laughs> we've been using Dovetail for a while. Um, we may be looking at a different tool where we can like port in other bits of information as well. So we use Zendesk for all of our customer support and designer yeah. support calls and correspondence and a tool like EnjoyHQ um, can kind of pull it all into the one spot. So that's where we're right. probably going. How does the rest of your product team fit into this research? Because I get it, designers and researchers, it's their, it's their job, but you know, developers, product manager, testers, are they involved in any way? Totally, yeah. So the product managers are the ones who have really been um, helping spearhead this continuous discovery approach, uh, which is really awesome and a breath of fresh air as well. So <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so there's that uh, from the product management side, but then also because we do have so many opportunities to attend an interview with a client or a designer or do some other kind of research session, we really do approach it as a team sport and put the request out there. Hey, tomorrow morning at 8.30 a.m., there's this particular thing happening. Can anyone join as a note taker? And we do try to um, give as many opportunities to a diverse set of people throughout the team and try to make it so that everybody actually has that opportunity within the different squads. So our engineers very much involved and Sometimes, like in the past, there has been a little bit of resistance from some people. But then my personal experience is, even if I drag that person along and sort of make them come along as a note taker to sit in on that session, after that, they're just a changed person. They always want to go to these sessions. They're just like, oh, my God, I didn't want to come along, but that was so awesome. And I think it's seeing someone actually interact with or talk about the thing that you built that is just such a great feeling for, like, developers as well as, of course, the rest of us too. For sure. Yeah, it's. I was saying it earlier. I've had experience in the past with the whole product team had to, had to 
take a day off every week, not day, not day off, day off from their work to be in the observation room. And then I would typically be in the, in the room with the, with the customer and the, their attitude changed so fast towards the work we were doing to the point where I remember times when we were sitting in, in planning meetings and they would come up with something that I maybe totally even forgot. It's like, oh, but you remember when this happened, I think we should prioritize this issue over this other one. And I thought this, well, first of all, this makes my job easier because I don't need to talk about design and the customer all the time. They are, they, they get it. But second of all, I think the moment you build enough trust that with your team and the moment they see the value of the work you're doing, they will, are more likely to you know, trust your gut feeling or trust your, your intentions. Or if you say, Hey, I think we should do this because X and Y, they're more likely to say, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Let's do that. Rather than always having to have these battles and what do we prioritize next? And what's more important is this and is that. So I found that bringing the product team to testing sessions was a very useful way of building trust. And, and honestly, I thought of it as a team building exercise. <laughs> it really brings a team together around one common goal. So, but with that being said, where I'm actually going with this mm -hmm. is it takes such a long time to convince everyone to participate because as a developer, as an engineer, I just want to write code. That's my job. I don't care about that. So you have to convince them somehow to come to these sessions. And then that's it. It, it, it. The sessions sell themselves, right? But how do you convince people whose job is not to talk to the customer to participate in these sessions? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? It's, it's, a, it's a really good question. I feel as though, I mean, people talk. And so once you've got one person who's come along to one as well, they can then talk about, we will always run like every different product development squad that we have. They're running a retro every two weeks as well. So for sure, that's going to come up as a highlight as well. Went along to this interview. It was awesome. In different conversations as well, like that will start to spread and people might be going, hang on, like, why did so-and-so go to that interview? They're raving about it. I want some of that as well. I'm kind of curious about that. But I also know that um, like my peers really value that too. And so it's coming from the top as, hey, it's really important for us to talk to the people who are using our products, like the people that were actually in jobs like to serve. And that sentiment is shared from my engineering counterparts. So the leaders of the engineering organization will always be encouraging the engineering managers to be in those uh, conversations and to meet with end users as well as then their team members too. So it does kind of ripple throughout the organization as well. But it can be tough. Like I remember way back when, when I was doing this in a previous job and I was doing um, like contextual inquiry with our end users and I was going to visit bookkeepers on a weekly basis. It felt like I had to bring some engineers along with me kicking and screaming, but like I would kind of talk to them about, hey, no, it's like, we'll go for a coffee afterwards. It's totally fine. You don't need to do anything. Just come along. Like, let's check out their environment and have a conversation with them. And I was able to kind of bring them along. But going back to what you were saying earlier as well, this is like the part of design where it's like we are such a an influencer and it's all about our communication and our facilitation skills as well in doing this too, right? Like this is a great tool for us in kind of helping our teams um, get on board with our design work too and understand the problems we're trying to solve. 
Yeah. So I said in the beginning that 99designs is a household name. Every designer, I think, knows about 99designs. But with such a big brand, I can only assume there are so many challenges because you are designing for a global audience. How how are you solving those challenges? And well, first of all, what are the challenges? And then how are you going about solving them? Uh, yeah, there are a lot of different challenges. One of the things that we have on 99designs is uh, we do use English as kind of like the the central language that we ask people to speak. But then we also have localized sites. So we've got like a, a German site. We have a Spanish site, a French language site, etc. Um One of the things that we'd really love to get better at is the localization of all of this. So if we take our um, German website, we have a an office in Berlin. So we actually do have a good, like about 30 team members over there who um, most of them can speak the language. And we would love to make the experiences for someone visiting our site in Germany to actually then see design examples that are also in their native language and that makes sense as well we also want to use like if we're ever to use an analogy in our marketing material or something like that we don't want to say something as though it's like uh peanut butter and jelly because even as an australian i I just look at that and i think well that's not speaking to me i'm not american i don't call it jelly (laughs) you know so to try to, to also localize things to that kind of level and we've got heaps of work to do but i think at the at the design phase, we have a really great opportunity to be able to um, affect change in this area and have it feel as though it's a, a more localized and personalized version of the site. It's definitely not easy. There are things that trip us up all the time. One of them, uh, I was just talking to a designer before this call and we we're talking about rolling out some particular uh, functionality and we were under the impression that we only needed to release it in British pounds but it turns out actually no we need to release this thing and have it available for different locales therefore different currencies and that's just so much more engineering work we also then have to consider the different needs of the invoices that our clients will receive and then um, like we don't have some norms around how we may handle rounding with that currency as well, because of course we don't necessarily want to display decimal points because uh, it can look a bit gross and we are a design company and a design website as well. And so then there are different trade-offs and business decisions with those things like, hang on, okay, so if we're going to round up or round down, who's going to take the hit? Are we going to ask someone to pay more money or are we going to actually take a cut on that? And how much will that kind of impact our revenue organizationally as well? Um, I don't know. There's just, there's heaps. And then add into it our research approach as well and trying to research with a global audience. And that's kind of tricky too. So we're looking at other areas to improve in that regard as well. Yeah, there's just so much that off the top of my head, I can think you mentioned currency, you mentioned language, there's devices, the type of (laughs) devices that people have all over the world. Not everyone sits on a on a top spec MacBook Pro with a retina display. And not everyone has the latest iPhone. Exactly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't have a great MacBook, you can't be a great designer. Or on the other side, that doesn't mean that if you don't have the greatest iPhone, you don't have a big company that needs design work. It's a win-win if you design for a global audience and you do it really well. Because, well, first of all, individual contributors, freelancers f- who didn't have access to 
a wealth of clients worldwide suddenly get access to them. But on the same, on the other side, it's the businesses that didn't necessarily have access to great design, great get access to great designers from all over the world at different prices with different skill sets, different design tastes and all of that. Mm-hmm. And what that will do, well, obviously to the business, that's a, that's a positive, um, a net positive to the business, but also because I truly believe design can change businesses in a positive way. What this does is that it it gives design or gives access to design to more companies all over the world that maybe didn't necessarily have it before. So I don't know how you're solving all of these challenges and obviously there's a million of them, but I can see that if, if you get to a point where you are able to do this really well, you can really help change both on the freelancer side and on the business side as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll also just mention that there are some really lovely stories within our designer community about how um, even pre-pandemic, like because they were working on the platform, it actually gave them different opportunities for their own personal circumstances that they wouldn't have had um, in other uh, instances. And one of them is an incredible illustrator on our platform. He's one of my favorite illustrators based in Indonesia. I was actually trying to get him to come out to Australia to meet with the team so we could kind of get to know some of our designer community as well. And he was quite reluctant to, and I thought perhaps it was a challenge for him because it can be quite expensive and difficult to get a visa. Um, So there was that. But uh, through further conversation, he actually said to me, look, Megan, I I don't speak English. I rely on Google Translate to even send you this message. I thought, okay, well, actually, we've got like an Indonesian-speaking team member. Maybe they could be his personal translator. Further conversations, he said, Megan, it's not going to work. I'm deaf. I was like, oh, okay. Like, wow, you, you didn't volunteer that information First up, you didn't need to tell me that either. It was just because I was kind of being a pain in the bum and trying to get him to come to the yeah. Australian office. Yeah. But it's like, well, actually, I wonder, like, I'd love to learn more about that. Um, and if that's like one of the reasons why he chooses to work through 99designs rather than some other kind of opportunity as well. So there's a lot of different little nuances as well that are really nice that are kind of within our designer community and why they may choose to work on 99. Yeah, just imagine that. I mean, that's a disability and it's probably harder for someone with a disability to find opportunities than someone without. So I can imagine how much the platform means to this person because mm. he earns a living through this platform despite all of the disabilities that he's suffering from. So that's so amazing. That should be a, you know, kudos to you and the and the team at 99 for allowing the, the, the wider design community to make a living, <laughs> really. Yeah. So... Uh, I um, I wanted to touch upon something that you've said earlier. You've said okay. that you've been with 99designs for quite a while because it keeps you engaged, you're learning, it's a good challenge and all of that. So I want to talk a little bit about the importance of doing work that matters to you and the effect that it has on you, on your mental health when you're doing work that doesn't matter to you that much when you're doing more that you're maybe not so keen on because I remember I worked on projects um, before that I wasn't necessarily happy or keen working on and and that not only affected the quality of my work but that affected my personal life too because personal life and work life they're very much combined <laughs> these days so let's talk about this is how do you feel about work that you're doing 
the work that you're doing is so important to your mental health and, and you should probably be doing work that you're really passionate about. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I would also say it's so important, but I also do understand that sometimes somebody needs to be able to make a living and the opportunity that they have is perhaps like not something that they truly want to do, but also I'm not going to judge them for kind of doing that thing that, I don't know, um, it may not be the, the sexiest or the coolest job ever their heart is truly in. But um, yeah, when I think about like the past roles that I've had and like directly before joining 99designs, I worked for another company who um, have the, I think it's the largest real estate app in Australia. And at the end of the day, the kind of users that mattered most to that company were real estate agents because they're the ones who are paying the money to post listings of properties. And for me, I felt really conflicted because I wanted to create fantastic experiences for people to be able to find a house that they absolutely loved and wanted to either rent it or buy it, depending on the type of listing that it was. Um, but it just didn't sit well with me in trying to then create the profile picture of the real estate agent marketing that property to be even bigger or to have much more information featured that was less relevant to the end user. So I, I felt as though there were times where I had my own inner turmoil around this and the company's goals and priorities. And I didn't love that. Prior to working there, I worked at a an accounting software company. And the way that I kind of kept myself motivated with that was I would think of my dad as one of our end users because he's a chimney sweep. Right. He's a small business owner. And I would think about him kind of getting frustrated when he was working with this accounting software to do invoices at the end of the week. And me as a little kid kind of wanting to talk to him or, you know, do whatever. And he's like, go away, Megan. I'm on the computer doing this stuff. And I wanted to make life yeah. better for other kids in that instance. And for someone like my dad, uh, who was pulling his hair out his, his computer, that was a way that I got to uh, enjoy working on accounting software was actually feeling as I was closer to the end user. And it was also really cool form design, but then working on real estate apps, I was like, I just don't care for real estate agents. Like no offense to anyone who's a real estate agent out there, but yeah, that, like that, it was kind of ultimately a big reason why I left and why I joined 99 Designs because I was excited to actually be able to relate even more to a big part of our user base. Yeah, I find that your work has better quality when you care about the end user rather than just the paycheck you get at the end of the month. So yep. you, you, you've said you've said in the beginning that you know there are some people who maybe are not so fortunate or don't have as many opportunities as, as someone in the Western world or as, you know, we can find a lot of uh, examples. Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, that is true. I also think that a lot of the people who are going to listen to this are maybe towards the beginning of their careers rather than someone who's super senior. And I also find that to be a bit of a problem because... I would like to argue that someone who's at the beginning of their career in, in, in today's design world is not very, is not in a very advantageous situation. It is hard to get your first job. It is hard to get your, your second job when you're a junior designer. So mm. let's talk a bit about that. What's, if, if you were to start today, and I ask myself that question all the time, and I don't really have an answer for it. If you were to start today, how would you approach this? Oh, I haven't really thought about this. Uh, I mean, I've done 
quite a bit of mentoring and I do I do encourage people to a lot of the people that I talk to through mentoring already have some kind of jobs. They're not kind of completely unemployed. And I encourage them to look for opportunities within their current role and the current organization that they work in. Uh, I, I have a problem with the thinking that so many people feel as though they need to do some sort of boot camp or something like that. And I think that this could be because I'm from like a, a very much, um, you know, like I, I'm from a, not a particularly uh, wealthy family or anything like that. I like hate the idea of having to spend ten thousand dollars on a a boot camp. Yeah. I, like for me, I'm like, yeah. No. Also, who has ten thousand dollars just lying around oh, uh, at at nineteen when you want to start your career? That's crazy money. I, yeah, a absolutely. And uh, it hurts me to think that some people talk about spending their life savings on this kind of stuff, and and, and I just kind of think, well, that. Maybe it's because when I started, it was um, it was a very different world as far as UX goes. But it was like I was able to find opportunities internally through working at a call center for a bloody insurance company, like the the most unsexy job, most boring stuff. Right. <laughs> but like I was able to kind of you know, follow my nose and seek out those opportunities and kind of show people what I could do as well and find my way with that. So um, I think be creative. Don't just think that it's a role that you need to apply for that officially has the job title that you're looking for. I worked for five years at that insurance company ultimately. And part of the reason why I left was because I wanted to have design in my job title. I was a UX designer for five years and not called a UX designer as well. Right. And I think that so many people feel as though, well, in order to get a foot in the door, then like step one is get a job title of maybe it's junior UX designer or associate UX designer or product designer, but maybe actually you could be doing that work and you could be called something else as well. I think that we're quite literal with this stuff as well and we could be a bit more creative. Yeah, I think it's also down to businesses and employers because you there is a, such a demand right now for design but you also got to think that because there is such a demand what there is the, the the demand is bigger than the supply for a reason it's because i i think it's it's not that easy to get into the the field today and i, I don't remember who this was but i had a conversation with someone in the previous season of the podcast who said i think today is one of the easiest times to get into design. And and I agree, it's easier compared to maybe 15, 20 years ago, because you have a lot of free resources on the internet to kickstart with and all of that. But I I think what is what is harder today is that the requirements to get a job are more difficult than 15 years ago when nobody knew what design could do. Oh, you, you can open Photoshop and that's great. Let's see what you can do. Versus today, it feels like you have to be able to do so many things just to get a foot in the door. Mm. So in a way it's easier, but in a way I also find it to be a bit harder. And I think it's also the responsibilities of the responsibility of companies to say, to open up to graduates or, or newer people who maybe can't really do that much, but they're willing to be trained and they have the right soft skills and all of that. So yeah, it's cer certainly a two way street. I will be changing topics completely now. So uh, <laughs> okay. this, we're going to move from junior designers to something totally different because mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, uh, I've done sports for you know, most of my life, um, since, since I was four, really. And I know that throughout the years, I've been able to draw a lot of parallels between 
my fitness journey and my career, my personal life too, but we're not, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> so I know you're a long distance runner. Uh, so I'm wondering whether your fitness journey has taught you anything that you've been able to apply at work. Definitely. <laughs> um, and I'll try not to talk too much about running because I am one of those people that when you get me started, I would shut up because I absolutely <laughs> love it. But I do actually attribute one of the reasons why I have had this staying power at 99designs, even through some really tough times over the last six years, is through the marathon running that I've been doing and the training that I've been doing for that. And so a big part of it is getting out there in the rain, in the crap weather or in the heat, whatever, getting it done, getting your hours in with your training. But then also um, it's just like a lot of resilience and grit that you're building up through these different things. And so for me, when I think of the toughest times that I've had at 99designs, one of them being um my peer, who was the director of product at the time, got breast cancer and she wanted to kind of keep working through that. And she kind of insisted on us not getting a replacement for her while she was working through this. But also she really wasn't well enough to be able to work during that period. And so I had to not only bear the the mental like challenge of someone who had become someone that I really loved and a great friend going through this horrible illness, but then also seeing the impact of all of that on her team, the product management team, and trying to help lead the product team through this. And like those sorts of things, like when you're doing marathon training, you kind of have to build this like sticking power to be able to run for, let's face it, four hours uh, nonstop is a pretty hard thing to do. And you build up a lot of mental resilience, like so much of endurance training is just all in the head and that um that for me has been huge in helping get through some of the big challenges and kind of weather the storms and get through it you know um yeah yeah something that i've learned through doing sports is that good things take a long time and sometimes playing the long game is better than wanting everything tomorrow because in most of the sports that you so i recently started uh, brazilian jiu-jitsu and i am absolutely oh, wow. crap at it <laughs> you've got to be willing to be shit at it for six months to a year before anything good happens mm. and in in a way i think that whenever i picked up whether it was a new tool or a new process or whenever i joined a new company and i kind of felt out of place or anything like that it always it always brought me back to the idea of you've got to be willing to suffer a little bit to get to the good stuff on the other end. And and nothing worth having, whether that's a great job, a, a great title, a good team, nothing worth having comes tomorrow. Everything takes more time than ideally we would like to spend. And I find that I also run uh, in, in circles here with um, professional athletes <laughs> and I find the way they think about sports to be in a way kind of similar. They will never sacrifice the, the, the long term for the short term. They'll never, you know, go drinking a little bit to have a little bit of fun because they know that that's going to affect the next three, four days of training. And I know those are professional athletes, but what I'm trying to get at is that idea of having a goal, looking at it. And then working backwards and thinking, well, in order to become that, in order to 
be able to lead this team or to, I want to become a director of design or whatever, whatever it is, set the goal and then work backwards. What you, what are the steps you need to do to get there? So to me, that's what sports really has taught me mm. uh, when it came to my career. Yeah, that, well, that is so true as well. It does uh, mean that you have to be good at planning time management as well to get in that training. But um, yeah, I, I like it's such a huge help. I've also found that it's not something that you're necessarily good at, but it's something that you have to have around, which is the right people. I've found that whenever you're on, on, on a specific journey, which will require sacrifice, which will require long-term thinking, the people that you have around you can either, there are two types, either the ones that will support you and will understand all the sacrifices and will be there for you, or the ones who will do things like, oh, I just have one, it's just one beer, who cares? Or don't train today because you can train tomorrow, stuff like that. So I found that whenever you surround yourself with the right people, and that's valid for work as well, not only for sports or your personal life, it truly accelerates your progress and it allows you to reach your potential. Which is why I was saying, I think right in the beginning, we were talking about working with good teams and, you know, building that trust and, and working together with people you'd like to go for a beer with. Creating those relationships at work can really be a, a catalyst for better quality work. I'm, I'm convinced of that because I've seen it on myself. Yeah, 100%. You've worked in uh, in-house for a few years, but you've also worked in agencies for, uh, for, for quite a while further back. So I'm wondering... Because I've done that, I've done both, uh, and I'm wondering what have you found to be different between the two in terms of your design work. Yeah, and to clarify, like I've worked in house much more than I have in agencies, so I'm definitely kind of more biased in that way. What I've yeah. What I've really loved about working at an agency, though, is just that variety that you get. And so I think that working in-house, you sometimes maybe get variety in different ways. Um, uh, I also enjoyed at agencies uh, ever-changing group of people that I'd work with, like it be at different kind of mini teams within my agency peers, or I could be the only UX consultant going to work with that client and kind of be amongst an entirely different team there, as well as getting to have a, a good sticky beak at the different workplaces as well. While I thought about, oh, would I want to work for this kind of company? Let me check out their office. Let me see what their processes are and get that kind of intel as well. But I definitely do prefer client side as kind of demonstrated by the types of companies that I've worked for and the jobs that I've been holding. but And I like being able to see something through from start to finish so much more. I think depending on which agency you work for and the kind of work that they do, you may get those opportunities, but it certainly does come about more so uh, client side. Yeah. I found uh, it's interesting you said that because I found working in agencies to be the best way to figure out where I want to work yeah. <laughs> or what type of clients, uh, because that experience, you get it through variety and knowing where you want to be, you, you get that through variety, working on different types of clients. And, and also I think learning where you don't want to work is just as important and, and figure as, as figuring out with you, where you do want to work. So uh, totally. to me, that's what agency life gave. I would also just add to that as well. Whenever I'm hiring people, I do have a slight preference for somebody who has got a little bit of agency experience in the mix too. And because you also get a whole bunch of other things, including some really great stakeholders 
stakeholder management skills and presentation skills and so on as well. So it's a great feather to kind of have in your cap too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we always end the podcast in the same way with uh, two questions. We're about to be there. We're almost at the one hour mark. So uh, the first question is, what is one soft skill that you wish more designers would possess? Um, We talked about communication skills earlier. I feel like this is really being taught to a lot of people through their design education and boot camps and things like that. So if I were to pick a different one, um, I would actually say time management is a soft skill that it would be great for us to all upskill in. And it can be a real pain point for some people, especially when it comes to, you know, juggling priorities and trying to do async work too. Right. Well, let's talk a bit more about that because I, I, usually these are rapid fire questions, but I I found, I found that interesting and surprising that you say time management. Why, Why do you find that to be such an important soft skill to have in today's work environment? Um, so, For me, I am thinking about our design team retros and things like that. And it does feel as though so much of the pain that people are feeling where they're not getting that focus time that they so greatly deserve, they would be able to unlock some of that if they were actually brushing up on some of their time management skills and investing a little bit more forethought in this area too and kind of looking at things, um, you know, in a way that they can actually uh, take control of their time a little bit more rather than just kind of let things happen um, to them in that regard. I feel there's just so much in the bucket of soft skills where I feel like I give designers a bit of a thumbs up in a whole lot of areas just based on so many of the designers that I meet. I feel like we do pretty well in a lot of them. So I'm kind of nitpicking a bit here with time management. Yeah, fair. Look, I do think that's important. I think there's what's also important is, especially when you're earlier in your career, you maybe haven't got that experience yet, but realizing that focus time is so important for your work because we live in a world where it's easily, we're easily distracted by whether that's devices or, you know, if anything really, we have very short memory span, uh, attention spans, not memory spans. And then you don't realize that getting distracted and not being able to have one to three hours of focus work is actually detrimental to the quality of your work. So the first step is first, you need to know that that's important. And then second of all is, well, what you said, the time management, how do you ensure that you actually get that time? Uh, And I think you also learned that through experience. Yep, agreed. The last one is, uh, what's one piece of advice that has changed your career for the better? I don't know if this is so much advice, but it was definitely some feedback that I received from a manager working an insurance company way back when, when I was sort of having my first conversations around design work with stakeholders. And I remember I was asked something about a particular interface that an agency had created. And I started to give my feedback leading with, oh, I like blah, blah, blah. And my manager said to me, Megan, I don't care about what you like, which kind of took me a little bit by surprise. I was like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Um, But it was, I don't care about what you like. Tell me about if this is going to work. And I, so I've kind of taken that with me and I've also given that feedback in a different way to other people within my teams throughout the years. And it is so much more powerful rather than say, I like this. 
I, I don't like that. Like, let's frame it as I feel as though this would work, blah, 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 or it would add this kind of value, et cetera. Uh, Cause it's not about your personal opinion. This is yeah. business. We're talking about if it is going to work, if it's going to be an, a better solution. Yeah, for sure. And I also think this reinforces a point that we've made throughout all of this, which is design impacts businesses versus you go to a, a museum and you look at a, a portrait or a picture and then you can say, well, I feel like this or that, but rarely the design that we're doing nowadays is supposed to be about feelings and more so is supposed to be about why do we think this is working? Will it work? And what are the metrics we're going to track to know if it's going to work afterwards? So I find that to be such an interesting, I know he maybe delivered it in a very, uh, he, he was harsh. <laughs> he was high, not in a harsh way, but, uh, you know, sometimes you, you need to take a cold shower, <laughs> a, a very well, a very well received cold shower <laughs> to learn something. So, um, yeah. Totally. All right, Megan. Thank you very much. This has been amazing. Where can people find you? Get in touch with you. You do some mentoring as well. Um, tell us all about that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I would say you can just find me on LinkedIn. It's quite boring. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yep. So search for me there. Uh, MeganDell.com has links to all of the things. So that's just my name, M-E-G-A-N-D-E-L-L. -L. And I'm also doing mentoring through ADP list as well. Um, and that's really about it. I do have Twitter, Instagram, all of those things, but, um, you know, time management, trying to get a bit more focused time and not spend as much time <laughs> on all those extra things. Of course. Yeah. We'll be putting everything in the show notes so people can easily find you and, uh, and the mentoring sessions on ADP list and all of that. So Megan, once again, thank you very much for being part of the design Miss business journey. Uh, I hope you had a, a good time. Yeah. I know I had a good time, a good chat and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks a lot very much. That was great. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for today. I hope you found this episode useful and that you've learned something that you're ready to implement at work tomorrow. If you've enjoyed this as always, it would mean the world to me if you'd share it with your community, if you'd leave a review, and of course, if you'd remember to tune in for the next one. Peace.